happening. I want you to picture that there is a big race, okay? There's a big race in our town, and there's a big prize at this race. Like, if whoever wins this race is going to win $100,000, okay? So this is a pretty big deal. Now, let's zoom in on two different runners of this race. First, let's look at a runner who is really poor. He is homeless. He doesn't have a car. He doesn't have a job. He has nothing else, and all of his hope lies in winning this race. There's nothing else for him after this, okay? So that's our first runner. The second runner, though, is a millionaire, and he has multiple houses, and he has vacation houses on top of that, and he has trust funds, and he has everything that he could ever want or need, and then some. And so he doesn't really need this money. It's kind of a drop in the bucket to him, and if he wins, he's probably just going to give the money to charity. He doesn't really have a need for it. So let's think about what each of these runners' experience is going to be like as they run this race. So let's say there is an obstacle, or maybe there's a rock in the road, and they stumble and fall. For that first runner, if he stumbles and falls because he tripped on a rock in the road, it's probably going to be pretty devastating for him, right? Because everything that he is placing his hope in has now been threatened. He might not get everything he wants because he has tripped and fallen over this rock. But that second runner, if he trips and falls over a rock, yeah, it's going to hurt. And it might be really frustrating, but it's not going to be devastating. It's not going to crush him completely, right? That first runner, maybe he sees an opportunity to cheat. Maybe there's a shortcut that nobody else has noticed, okay? Now, there's so much riding on this race for him. He needs to win it so badly that when there's an opportunity to cheat, he might be more likely to take it. He might be more likely to compromise his own integrity and values to cheat to win that race because there's a lot riding on it. But that second runner, if there's an opportunity to cheat, he might not feel quite so tempted because he doesn't really have any need for it. He doesn't have as much on the line. That first runner, say that there's some runners ahead of him and they trip and they fall and they're blocking the road. And he has a choice to stop and help them or to trample over them to get ahead of him for himself, okay? Now, if he's faced with that choice, he's probably more likely to do what it takes, trample them into the dirt, get ahead, and leave them behind. Whereas that second runner, he is not fighting for quite as much. There's not as much on the line for him. So it might be a little bit easier for him to choose helping that person because ultimately his hope is not in that race. He doesn't need to win. What he has after the race to go home to is far greater. So the pressure is lifted. Now, of these two runners, who do you think is going to enjoy the race more? Like who's going to find more joy in it? Probably the second runner. Which one is more likely to leave the race with his integrity and his character unchallenged? In other words, which one is more likely to leave the race without sinning a whole lot? (laughs) Probably the second runner. Because you see, there's a difference in where their ultimate hope lies. And that changes everything about how they experience every step of the race. Now I want you to think for a minute about our own lives. Because there's two storylines that we can be living in as well. That first storyline is we're born, we have life on this earth, and then we die. In this storyline, all of our hope is found in that middle section, the section that says we have life on this earth. There's nothing beyond that. So if we're living in this storyline, we place our hope, all of our hope, on this life. We might have a picture in our minds of what we want our life to look like. And when we struggle or we face suffering or obstacles, it can be devastating to us because what we're placing our hope in has been shaken. We might find ourselves compromising our integrity or sinning in order to attain this picture of the perfect life that we have in our head. 
So when our husband or our kids don't measure up to that perfect picture, when our job is not fulfilling us, we might act in unloving ways towards those people or act in unloving or un unmoral ways in those situations because there's so much pressure on everything every day because this life is where our ultimate hope lies and all of the joy gets sucked out of it even when things are great maybe we have achieved a picture of that perfect life we've got the husband that we wanted or the job that we thought would fulfill us eventually that joy is going to fade when it fails to fulfill us the way that we thought it would and we feel ourselves lacking again guys that storyline it feels pretty bleak but what's the second storyline? Well, that one is far better. The second storyline is a little bit bigger than just ourselves, and it goes creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Now, this is the overarching storyline of the Bible. So when we place ourselves in this storyline, we see that our ultimate hope is not on this life, but on something that is to come, something far greater. Because we're currently in the fall and the redemption portion of the story. We live in a fallen world. God created the world, Adam and Eve sinned, and now we are in a fallen world riddled with sin, and that is where we live. Christ has come to redeem the lost. He has brought redemption. So if you are in Christ, you are, in a living, you are living in a portion of the story that's kind of characterized by both. We experience a lot of suffering and a lot of sin because we are in a fallen world, but we are redeemed in Christ, so we also see a lot of victory. Where is the ultimate hope, though, in this storyline? Where does it all culminate? Well, it's in the fact that one day the fall is going to be completely in the past and we're going to have complete restoration of God's good and perfect plan for earth and humanity. So regardless of what happens in this life, we have something far better to come when Jesus returns and restores all things. So when we struggle or we face suffering, yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful, but it won't break us. When our family isn't perfect, we can show grace because our ultimate hope lies somewhere else. We can find joy in the good and the bad because we know that this is all just temporary and we don't put the same pressure on everything to satisfy us and to look perfect. Okay, now I want you to picture one more runner in this race to kind of help us set us up to understand the text today. Picture that first runner again, the one who's poor, the one who has nothing. And picture that as he's running the race, somebody runs alongside of him and he's like, hey, guess what? Pressure's off. You've got a huge inheritance waiting for you. Somebody died. You don't know them, but it's going to be awesome. So no pressure. Keep running and have fun. And then they move along. Okay? Now imagine how that kind of changes things, right? He's got this news. The pressure's kind of lifted. Okay, this should change things, right? This should take the pressure off the race. It should help him run it with joy. But... I have a feeling that this guy, he's probably still going to find himself struggling. He might still find himself tempted to cheat. He might still face these obstacles in the race poorly. He might still put his own needs ahead of others and leave people face down in the dirt behind him. He might still feel really stressed out about this race and have no joy. Why? Why would he not have joy when he's gotten this great news? Well, maybe... It's because he doesn't have a full and complete knowledge and the ability to trust that that inheritance is there and to trust what it looks like. He doesn't even know this guy who just told him. How can he trust that this inheritance really exists? He hasn't seen it with his own eyes. Like, he doesn't have a full picture of what it is that he is gaining. Like, how much money are we talking about? What kind of house, you know? And then maybe as he's running, he might hear some lies along the way that challenge this new information. So it's hard to place your hope in something that is vague or unknown or that gets muddled up with false information. So this runner just has some vague message that there's something better for him. 
What do you think would help him enjoy the race and leave behind his desperation and his stress? Probably a more full and complete picture and description of what exactly that inheritance looks like that is waiting for him and the ability to spot lies about it that come up along the way. That's what's going to help him to have more trust in this new good news and actually live as though it is true, to live like that second runner, okay? So guys, this is kind of how I picture what the Thessalonians are like. They're new Christians. Like, people think that Paul wrote this second letter just a few months after he wrote the first. And we learned that he wrote that first letter really shortly after leaving them. And he was only with them for a few months as well. So they're probably, you know, less than six months into this Christian life, okay? They have just been told about this second storyline. They used to are living in the storyline where they're just born, they have life on this earth, and and then they die. So this is a new way to view life for them. They're also facing some intense struggles. And in order to endure these struggles well, without being led into sin and without breaking completely, they're going to need a bigger and more thorough picture of what exactly it is that they have waiting for them in the future. And they're going to need the ability to spot lies about it as they come. So Paul knows that the best way to encourage them in their suffering is to fill in their theology to add to that picture so that they can trust that this inheritance is true and see how great it really is. So tonight, we're going to read most of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Like, it's three chapters long, and we're going to read two chapters of it. And you're going to see that he talks a whole lot about suffering in in these chapters. He also talks a whole lot about the return of Christ. But he doesn't really do it as two separate topics. They're really intermingled throughout the letter, especially in chapter 1. Because Paul knows that in order for them to endure their persecution well, they need to have a more full picture of the hope that is coming for them when Jesus returns. This is vital for them. Because if all that they have is some vague notion that something better awaits them, they might find themselves living like that first runner again, placing all their hope in this life and then being crushed under the weight of their suffering, okay? So those are the eyes that I want you to have as we read the text tonight, okay? This is kind of where they're at. So we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to start working our way through the text. Verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Okay, so we see already he's starting the letter similar to how we did our last one. He's thanking them that their faith is growing, and he's thanking them that they are loving each other well. Now, this introduction is a little different than his first letter because it's not quite as long. In that first letter, he gave this long, flowery introduction going on and on about how much he loves them. He doesn't feel the need to do that again because he just did that a few months ago in the first letter. So this one's very much to the point. So let's zero in. Okay, when he's condensing it all down, what are the things that he is still keeping in there? Because it's got to be pretty important, okay? Well, we're going to see that he gives thanks for two things. One, he is thankful that their faith is growing. And two, that their love for one another is increasing. So in other words, he is seeing that, hey, there's some spiritual fruit. And he sees that spiritual fruit is in them as their faith is growing and through them as they love one another well. 
We talked a lot about spiritual fruit a couple weeks ago and about how that it is evidence that our faith is genuine because we can't create that fruit ourselves. It's something that the Holy Spirit does in and through us. It's the work of the Spirit. So once again, we see when Paul pairs down his intro, he is having these evidence, he's seeing the evidence of their spiritual fruit, that their faith is genuine, and he's having eyes for the spiritual things. Let's move on and read verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Okay, I want you to dwell on this verse for a minute. What does it say that he boasts about to the other churches? It says he's boasting that they are remaining steadfast in their persecutions. Because remember, there was this intense political persecution that they were facing, and that was the source of all their suffering. So Paul boasts that, hey, through all this suffering, your faith is remaining intact. Now I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever been a part of a Bible study or a small group when you're sharing prayer requests and people start giving praise reports? This is something that happens often. Typically, it goes something like this. Guys, do you remember how a few weeks ago I told you that my mom was really sick and we prayed for healing? I just want to give a praise report that God healed her and she is all better. Or, guys, do you remember how I got fired from my job and I needed a new job and we were really praying that a new job would be provided? Well, I want to just give a praise, like praise, to, the God, praise to God because he provided another job for me, okay? That's typically the way our praise reports sound because we tend to want to praise God when he gives us the earthly things that we want, or when he removes earthly suffering. We praise him when he lets our life here on earth look how we want it to. And that is not what Paul is doing here. He doesn't say, praise God, your suffering has lessened just like we asked. That's not what he says. No, he praises God for the spiritual fruit that their faith has endured through the suffering. Because Paul, from the very beginning of this letter, is showing that he has his eyes set on the eternal his eyes are set on the spiritual fruit rather than just endly, ending the worldly and the temporary suffering. Okay, so even in his intro, his hope is not set on this life. It's set on something that is far greater to come. Now, as we move on to the next few sections, we're going to see Paul continue to address their suffering by kind of shifting their gaze to the future. We're going to see him really intertwining their suffering with the return of Christ. Again, these are not two separate issues to him that he wants them to learn about. Rather, he wants them to see that we can better endure the suffering when our hope is set on the restoration that is to come. Okay, so we're going to notice something he points out as we go. Let's look at verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Okay, so he's pointing out here that there is a purpose to their suffering. This purpose is so that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, when I read that at first, it felt kind of weird to me. Like, is Paul saying that they have to prove themselves? Like, is this some sort of initiation? Like, if you can survive in the woods with all the wild animals, you can be in our secret club. Like, that's kind of the feel that it's, it can give off. But that's not really what Paul is saying here. That's not the heart behind this, okay? Think of all the times that Paul has talked about the evidence of their faith being genuine. It's proven genuine when they stand firm in suffering. Because anybody can look like a Christian when life is going their way, but then when suffering or hardships come, their true nature gets revealed. What's really underneath comes out. If they're living for this world alone, then suffering is going to bring sin. It's going to bring desperation, and it might even bring turning away from God completely because God is not giving them what they want. However, if they're living for a future hope of eternity with God when all of these things are made right, 
that is also going to show in their response to suffering because they're going to struggle, but they're not going to break, okay? And they will continue to follow God. Think back to those two runners. They might look the same. They might both be running hard after, after the prize. But when they both trip and fall over a bump in the road, the runner whose hope is in the race alone is going to respond very differently than the runner whose hope is in the millions of dollars that they're going to go home to regardless, okay? So as the Thessalonians face suffering, how they respond is going to show where their hope is found. Is it in this life alone? Or is their response going to be evidence that they are hoping in Christ one day setting all things right? Is their faith going to stand firm so that they can be considered worthy of the kingdom of God? Okay, so that's kind of more of what he is saying about being found worthy. It's more of what is revealed. Okay, so now let's go ahead and pick back up in verses 6 through 8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> okay, there's two times in this portion of the text, in this chapter that we're in, that we're going to see the word when, and this is the first. This is the first when. Paul is addressing this intense persecution that they have been facing, and he says, when Jesus returns, then they will have relief from their suffering, and those who persecute them are going to be punished, okay? Now, this can kind of feel a little bit confusing because we're also taught in the Gospels that we're supposed to love our enemy, right? We're supposed to pray for those who persecute us. So why is Paul giving them the encouragement that, hey, it's okay, there's going to be vengeance one day on your enemies, rather than telling them to pray and love the, pray for and love their enemies, so let's kind of examine this by putting ourselves in the Thessalonian shoes for a minute. No doubt, they have been praying for their suffering to end. And no doubt, they want their persecutors to pay. Because for the Thessalonians, the way that it worked in their culture, they lived in this culture of reciprocity, okay? This, they had these ideas of retribution and reward that were just deeply rooted in their ideas of justice. Their culture was very much eye for an eye, you get what you give. Like, this was the culture that they had grown up in. This is how they understood the world, okay? So it would have been extremely difficult for them to suffer extremely unfairly at the hands of others and to have no hope of vindication, that would have been very hard for them in the culture that they grew up in. I mean, it would have been, it'd be hard for us too, okay? So with this unfair treatment that they were getting, it would have been so easy to start doubting that God is actually just and doubting that God actually loves them, okay? If God was really just, wouldn't he want to, like, have some justice on these people who are persecuting me? If he loved me, wouldn't he make the suffering stop? It would have been very hard for them also to love their enemy because if you felt that your enemies could torture you with absolutely zero repentance and zero repercussions, it would be very hard to love them. We are able to love our enemies when we know that either that love is going to lead them to repentance or there will be repercussions for them, right? But for them to just go off scot-free, that doesn't sit quite as well, okay? So for them, this is going to help them to love their enemies better. Now... I want you to hear this. Their problem here is not that they want God's justice to repay the evil that is done for them. That's not the problem. The problem is not that they want to experience God's love more by having God end their suffering and having God relieve their pain, okay? That's not their problem. The problem is that they might be placing their hope that these things are going to happen in this life, okay? So we see Paul gives them really good news by shifting their gaze. 
by bringing them that to that other greater storyline where they have hope beyond their short time here on earth. Because Paul tells them that when Jesus returns, they will have relief from their suffering. It will end, and they will suffer no more. And then what's more, he tells them the people who caused their suffering are not going to get away with it. Paul assures them that when Jesus returns, God will repay their persecutors for everything that they have done, and that vengeance will be upon them if they do not repent. Now, that promise, again, would have been especially meaningful to them in that culture of reciprocity that they lived in. And it would have helped free them to love their enemy well in this life because they could trust that God was going to make all things right in the end. So, like the second runner in our illustration earlier, yes, it's still going to be hard for them to endure this suffering. It's still hard to face roadblocks and stumble. It hurts, but it will not break them because like that second runner this one race this short life is not all they have they have something far greater to go home to afterwards where every desire of their heart is going to be met and that is how they can face their current affliction in a way that counts them worthy of the kingdom of god now let's move on because paul doesn't stop there let's go back to verse 9 and continue he then goes on to say They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that... The name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so in this portion of the text, we see a second when. In verse 10, Paul says, Their enemies will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction when Jesus comes to be glorified in his saints. He then says that the name of the Lord Jesus is going to be glorified in them and they in him. Now, This is one of those things that doesn't make a lot of sense to us because this isn't really the way we talk. We don't really say things like this. I don't talk about being glorified a whole lot, okay? So we can miss the significance of this. So let's look at their culture a little bit. In that era, the name of a person was more than just a name. It often was more like a symbol of who that person was. It revealed their qualities. It kind of told about their fundamental character. It was linked a lot to their reputation and to their honor. So statements about somebody's name carried great significance. It was also really common in that day for the glorification of these false gods and all these other temples to promise in turn to give glorification to the ones worshiping that false god. This was kind of the way that a lot of these false gods were worshipped. So basically, to the extent that a false god in that culture was honored and respected, the ones worshiping that false god were also honored and respected as well. Now in Thessalonica, the name of Jesus was suffering dishonor in the sight of everybody outside of the church. And this meant that those who were worshiping this dishonored name of Jesus, they were also seen with dishonor. So in their culture, the name of Jesus was mocked, which meant they were mocked. So one commentator said it this way. He said, for those persecuted followers of the one mocked as another king, one called Jesus, the promise that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified had great social importance. So again, we see that Paul is shifting their gaze from this world back to that greater storyline. Because it's okay that they didn't want to be mocked. It's okay that they didn't want to be disrespected or seen as less than. It's okay that they kind of wanted honor. 
The problem, once again, is that they may have been looking to this world to give it to them, as though this world is all that they have. So Paul is promising them here that while they might never be honored by this culture in this life, one day what they lack in this life is going to be given to them. One day Jesus is going to return and his name will be glorified and he's going to be publicly honored and they will be glorified in him. So once again, he's reminding them that this life is not where they place their hope. But when Christ returns and brings full restoration with him, that is where all of their hopes and their desires will find fulfillment. So they can withstand being booed as they run this race because they have a future after the race, after this life, when their king will no longer be mocked. But as verse 10 says, he will be marveled at and they will be glorified in him. Guys, there are a lot of things that we sacrifice in this life when we follow Jesus. There's so many things that the world seeks after, things like success and respect and admiration and material wealth, things that we may or may not have in this life. But like the Thessalonians, whatever we give up or whatever we lack in this life because of following Christ, we are one day going to gain far more when Jesus returns. Okay? So when we look at this whole chapter that we just talked about, we see over and over again that Paul is assuring them the pain that you so desperately want to stop one day will. The justice that you want to see happen is going to one day come. And the things that you've given up in order to follow Christ are going to one day be given to you guys. It's natural to desire all of these things. But what changes everything is whether we are looking for those things in this life or in the future second coming of Christ. By continually pointing their gaze on the future promises, Paul is lessening their grip on this current life and helping them to experience the joy and the freedom that come when our hope lies in the return of Christ, okay? These things that we long for may or may not happen in this life, but we can place our hope in the fact that when Christ returns, they will. And that brings us to chapter 2. And Paul's going to continue to help them with this even more. See, in this chapter, they really, really needed to have some clarity in what was going to happen, how these things that they wanted so bad were going to be given to them when Christ returned. So Paul helped them with that. And now we see that some false teaching also has seeped in, and it's clouded their vision of this future with fear. It's prevented them from seeing it clearly. So now that Paul has spent some time reminding them of what they have to come, reminding them of what is true, now he's going to spend some time correcting what is not true so he can get it out of the way, so they can have a clear vision, okay? So let's move on to chapter 2, and we're going to start chapter 2, verse 1, read the first three verses here. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Okay, so before we kind of get into the meat of this letter, I'm going to stop here. We see in verse 2 that there was a false teaching being spread. And that false teaching, he says here, is that they all were told that the day of the Lord had already come. So in other words, somebody was probably saying something along the lines that Jesus had already returned in some spiritual sense, and they missed it. They didn't notice it. They, didn't, they just missed it, okay? We also see in verse 2 that this false teaching might have been causing some confusion and some fear because Paul is saying, we don't want you to be anxious about this, okay? We know that everything Paul has been telling them so far about the day of the Lord and Christ coming back has been for encouragement, not for fear. 
But we see here, people got hung up on the timing, they started to misread their current situation, and that caused fear. Just like today, people like to get hung up on the timing, they misread their current situations, and they become fearful instead of filled with hope. So Paul's going to help them out here, and to help them, he's going to give them some eschatology here, okay? Remember that word? If you listen to the bonus episode, you should remember what eschatology is. It is basically the word that is just describing the doctrine of the last day. So whenever you have doctrine um, about just kind of the last days, the coming of Christ, that's called eschatology. Now, we often think things like this, like theology, eschatology, and things like that, we think this is just head knowledge. It's just head knowledge. It's not that important. We kind of like to throw it aside and just think. We kind of make this excuse that, you know, it doesn't really matter if I know good theology. I just want to love Jesus with my heart. As long as I have a heart that loves Jesus, it doesn't matter if I know theology. And, I mean, yes, that is true, but I think we see clearly here in the text that it can be really hard to love and to trust Jesus if you have bad theology. Because bad theology can cause us to misread our current experiences and doubt the word of God. So while, yes, loving Jesus is absolutely the goal, I would argue that sometimes it can be really hard to love and trust Jesus if our theology is poor. Because good theology frees us from lies that cloud our ability to run the race well. Just like Paul is trying to free them from some lies that were hindering their ability to run the race well. So how is this playing out for the Thessalonians? Well, this is where it gets tricky. Because you remember how in the bonus episode we talked about how there's like these four different views on the end times. And really there's probably even a lot more than that. But these are the four main ones. Well... I quickly discovered in studying this chapter that every commentator described what was going on here completely different because the way they viewed the end times completely changed the way that they described what was going on in this entire chapter. Everybody interprets these verses very differently. So even just the idea of the fact that they were scared, everybody had in a different idea of why this news was scary to them. So like for the dispensationalists, which for those of you guys who remember, these are the ones who believe that there's a secret rapture like in those Left Behind books. They would look at this text and say, oh, well, they were afraid because they think the rapture happened and they all got left behind. That's the kind of how the dispensationalist view of this is. But then there's other people who don't believe in a secret rapture, and they would say something along the lines of, well, they were fearful because they think that they're in the middle of this great tribulation and it's about to get a whole lot worse. Or they were fearful because this information is different than what they were told and they don't know what to trust. Or they were fearful because if Christ returns, then judgment should have happened and why are they still suffering and getting, you know, having people sin against them? So, basically there is a lot of thoughts even on this very beginning of why are they fearful so it's hard you can imagine as we go through this text to really interpret it without getting into the mud and getting in the weeds of what exactly all of you know these different viewpoints are so well I cannot say with certainty what the Thessalonians were actually afraid of it would be easy to get caught up in the weeds of all these different interpretations we can say for certain that they did not have enough information to discern their circumstances, okay? Paul had given them teachings on the return of Christ when he was there, and they were familiar with these teachings that Paul gave him, but false teaching came in, it clouded their vision, and they started to struggle, okay? So, to ease their confusion and fear, Paul is going to remind them of some certain things that are going to happen before the day of the Lord comes. And this is so that they can have their minds put at ease and not be ruled by fear, okay? So let's see and read on to see what Paul reminds them is going to happen before the day of the Lord comes. We're going to start in chapter, verse 3 here. And this is going to be a longer, a longer section, okay? So we're going to read 3 through 12. 
Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know that what is restraining him now, so that, what he, may, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, easy text, right? (laughs) So we see here there is a whole lot of detail given to us about this person that he calls the man of lawlessness. So who is this person? We talked in that bonus episode about how there's four main eschatological views, four views of the end time, and how even though those views were different, they're all trying to piece together the same elements. There's certain prophecies in scripture. All of these views kind of piece them together differently, okay? Now, you might remember that one of those elements that these views are trying to piece together is that there's going to be a 1,000-year period, and some people see this period as literal, like there's going to be an actual literal 1,000 years, and some people see it as more figurative, like it's just a very long time. Some people think that it's still coming. Some people think that the church age, we're in it right now. Okay, nobody agrees on the 1,000 years, what it looks like, but everybody agrees that there is some sort of 1,000-year period. They all also say that during this 1,000-year period, Satan is bound. They don't all agree on what it means that he is bound. Does he, how much power does he really have? That's up for our debate. But in some sense, he's not able to unleash his full power on the earth. Then all of these views would say that at the end of this 1,000 years, Satan is released. He is no longer bound. And at this time, there is an antichrist figure. You've probably heard the term antichrist more than you have probably heard the term man of lawlessness. But it's the same thing. Okay, so then at this time that Satan is released from this 1,000-year period, there is an antichrist figure that Satan uses to lead many people away from God. So in this passage, that antichrist figure is referred to as the man of lawlessness. There's a lot more detail about this man of lawlessness in the book of Daniel, and a lot of people think that Paul probably got his information that he gave to the church at Thessalonica from the book of Daniel. That might be where he's drawing his information from. So Paul is reminding him here that, hey, Before Christ returns, there's going to be this rebellion, remember? There's going to be a lot of people who are turning away from God. And before Christ returns, the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, okay? So you guys don't need to be deceived. And then to make sure that they're still not afraid, well, what if I missed the man of lawlessness? He's going to remind them of some things the man of lawlessness does so that they can be assured, no, we did not miss this, okay? So Paul also tells us in this section that the man of lawlessness is going to take his seat in the temple of God. Now, Like there's agreement generally that the man of lawlessness is going to come at the end of whatever that 1,000 period looks like, but people disagree a whole lot on what it means that he's going to take his seat in the temple of God. Some people interpret this to mean that some person who's basically controlled by Satan is going to physically sit in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and claim to be God. 
That is what some people interpret this as. Others have pointed out, well, after Jesus died on the cross, the temple is typically always referring to either the church or our bodies, okay? The church is now the new temple. And so those people would say, a lot of people would say, well, I don't think he's going to physically be in a rebuilt temple sitting in a throne. I think that he's going to have a seat of prominence in the church at large and lead people away that way. Or I think that this is more of a symbolic, you know, sitting in the throne of our hearts as we are the temple. There's a lot of different ways that you can interpret what it means that he's going to take his seat in the temple of God. There is not a lot of agreement there, okay? So that is a new, um, there's another thing that you guys can discuss in your groups. Like, what do you think? Do you think that this temple is literal or is it more the church? There's a lot of thoughts on that. Paul also tells them that when this man of lawlessness comes, Satan is going to work through him to perform signs and wonders in order to lead people away from God, okay? We see that Jesus came and performed signs and wonders to lead people to God. The Antichrist will perform signs and wonders in order to lead people away from God. We also see in the text here that Paul tells them that God is going to send a strong delusion so that people will believe what is false. Now, this is another tricky one. It's hard to take that in. It's hard to think, wow, God is sending this strong delusion. That feels like something that Satan would be doing. Why is God sending a spirit or a strong delusion? What does that mean? Something that is helpful to realize and to see in the text, the text is pretty clear that this is happening to those who are perishing. We see that it says specifically those who are perishing and those who did not believe in the truth. That is who God is sending the strong delusion to. So this is not saying that God is preventing people from receiving the gospel. It is not saying that God is going to delude his followers into stopping to not follow him anymore, okay? This is something that is saying that God is doing in the hearts of those who have already rejected him and who are not going to become followers, okay? It's saying that for those who have already rejected God, when this man of lawlessness comes and he starts doing all these fake signs and wonders, all these people who are not truly Christians are going to follow him and like in droves, okay? So we're, it's, it's going to make it very obvious that this is happening. This isn't going to be some secret thing that everybody can miss, that God is sending the strong delusion so that anybody who's not following Jesus is going to be following these false signs and wonders of this man of lawlessness. So Paul's making the point here, these things are not things that you can easily miss. These things are going to be things that are very visible for everybody to see, okay? He's easing their minds. We also see that when God sends this strong delusion that he is not powerless here. He is not passively sitting by like helpless while Satan is leading people away. But we see an aspect of God's sovereignty as he is still working things out for his ultimate story and his ultimate glory. So we kind of got a lot of details about this man of lawlessness. What is he going to do? He's going to do all these things. There's disagreement on what that looks like. Some people think literal. Some think some people think more of it as figurative or spiritual. It is really tempting to look at this and to pick it all apart and to start thinking, well, how does this fit into those four main eschatological views? Okay, how does this fit? What does this support the most? And guys, we're not going to do that because that was not Paul's purpose in writing this text. Paul's not giving them this information primarily so that they're going to know exactly how it's all going to play out. He's not doing this so that they can create calendars and charts to predict it all, okay? He's telling them all of this to bring them comfort. He's telling them all this so that they will not be deceived. He's giving them clarity. He's telling them enough of the truth so that they can spot the lies and so that their faith can remain intact, okay? 
because this reminder that this man of lawlessness is going to be revealed, that means that he's not going to stay hidden from them. The fact that he's going to lead all these people away first, that's going to give them comfort because they're going to be able to say, okay, huh, this hasn't happened yet. I couldn't have missed all of this, so I can find peace that, no, Jesus did not return yet. God did not forget us. God has not failed to make good on his promises. We did not miss the second coming of Christ. Paul is easing their fears by eliminating the lie. And then we see in this section, maybe the most important thing that we don't want to miss, Paul is reassuring them that when that time comes, that this lawless one is revealed, even though there's going to be suffering, even though there's going to be tribulations for a time, when Jesus returns, he will kill him with his breath and bring him to nothing. Guys, I don't know what all this is going to look like. I don't know for sure if there's going to be an actual person sitting on a literal throne in Jerusalem or if he's going to spiritually sit on the throne in the hearts of those who reject God or if he's going to be a person of prominence in the church. I don't know the timeline of how all this is going to happen. I don't know what these false signs and wonders are going to look like. But what I do know and what I do find immense comfort in is in this promise that regardless of what those days look like, they end with Jesus ending all evil. Simply with the appearance of his coming, Satan and all of his work are going to be brought to nothing, never to have influence over us again. And to say that that is good news feels like a massive understatement. The coming of Christ means the death and the annihilation of Satan. So if they're still suffering, if the Thessalonians are still suffering, then obviously the lawless one hasn't been killed and they didn't miss anything. Their fears can be eased. They can get back to running the race well, holding on to the hope that one day all of the promises that Paul reminded them of back in chapter 1 are still going to play out. Having this head knowledge, having this good theology, armed them against the lies that caused them to doubt God's love to doubt God's faithfulness, and to doubt God's truthfulness. Having this theology gave them the freedom to throw off the fears that were caused by lies and to grasp back onto the hope that they have in Christ coming back and making all things new. And that brings us to the end of the section. Let's pick back up in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So we see, as Paul kind of wraps up this portion of the letter, he goes on to assure them further, not only did you not miss the return of Christ, you guys were just the first fruits of those who are to be saved. In other words, there were still many more that still needed to come to know the Lord, and the church was going to continue to grow and expand. God was not finished with his work of reconciling people to himself yet, and that is good news for us. He reminds them yet again that they are going to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that truth is going to enable them to stand firm in holding to everything that they had been taught and they were not going to do this in their own strength. But he reminds them here that their Lord, Jesus Christ himself, was going to bring them comfort and to help them run this race well. So as we close, think back on the third runner in that race example in the beginning of the talk. 
that runner was given some news, news that he had something better to come. But remember how we talked about having a vague understanding that something better is coming is not necessarily helpful? We need evidence. We need details. We need to be able to really picture it. And we need to be able to spot the lies that challenge it. And so do you see how Paul is giving all of that to them here in these chapters? He's giving them a picture of the promise that they had coming. He's reminding them of what it looks like. And he's removing the lies that cloud their ability to trust those promises. promises. And he does all of this so that when they continue to face all of this suffering, suffering they will not break under it. It's so that they will remain steadfast during hardships because they will know that their hope is not in this life. Now, we saw how this helped the Thessalonians, but how does it help us, okay? We're not facing the same kind of political persecution that they were. We're not being mocked and scorned to the extent that they were. We probably aren't being mocked and scorned really hardly at all. We're not fighting these same lies and trying to battle, well, did Jesus already return? We're not in their situation, but we can still learn a lot from this. A lot of it still applies to us because just like the Thessalonians and just like those two runners in the example at the beginning of this talk, our experience of this life changes drastically depending on where we place our hope. Because when our hope is on this world, when we live as though this is all that there is, that we're born, we live our life, and then we die, there is so much pressure on everything to satisfy us and to meet our innermost desires. If my hope is in this life that I've pictured for myself, this life where people think that my house is super cute and they admire me for it, they think that my husband and I get along great all the time, that I have a job that people respect, I never struggle financially, my kids are just really well-behaved all the time and they just adore me completely, if that's what my hope is, this life that I have pictured, then yes, life is going to be full of stress every day. I'm going to feel anxiety all the time, and I'm going to have very little joy. I'll probably find myself snapping at my kids when they're not perfect. I'll be irritated and harsh with my husband when we disagree on things, and I'll feel a failure if I don't have my dream job, if I don't have enough money. I'll feel constant shame when my house is a mess because I have two kids that destroy it all the time, and it's going to be easy to fall into sin to gain all these things that I think that I desperately want, but when my desires go unmet, struggling and hardships that I encounter, they will feel devastating. And on that occasion that I do have what I think I want, I'm not going to be able to keep it. I'm going to be clinging to it with so much anxiety, and I know it's not going to last, okay? I'm going to have the knowledge that it won't last and my joy won't last either. And if that's the life that I'm living in, if that's the storyline that I'm living in, I'm pretty sure that just having some vague sentiment or vague knowledge that Jesus is coming back one day is probably not going to help me to let go of all that. I'm going to need a lot more knowledge and understanding of what that's really going to look like to help me loosen the grip that I have on this life. But if my hope is in the future, if it's on the future return of Christ, and if I know that when he returns and when he makes all things new, all of these innermost desires that I feel, they're going to be met perfectly in a way that this world doesn't even begin to compare. If that's my story, all the pressure that I tend to put on my life to look a certain way, that pressure is going to be lifted. If I have this full and vibrant picture of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back, when there is no sin, no more conflict among anybody anymore, no more judgment from other people, I'm not striving for their approval all the time, all of my needs are constantly met, if that is the picture that I'm in and I understand it, 
I'm not going to put quite as much pressure on everything today to satisfy my innermost desires. I can have confidence that God is going to set right one day any wrongs that are being done to me. And anything that I lack in this life is going to be more than made up for when Jesus returns. When I'm not getting what I want, I might be able to withstand the temptation to sin a little bit easier. I might be less likely to break when I face suffering. And I can also just better walk through this life without being a complete ball of stress about to snap at any moment because everything that I'm placing my hope is is constantly threatened. The more I can fill in the details of how the future promises of Christ's return are going to bring the answers to all of my earthly troubles, the more that I can see how it perfectly fulfills all my earthly desires, and the more that I weed out all the lies that cloud my vision, the more likely that I'm going to be able to walk through this life facing both the good and the bad with freedom and with joy. Let's pray. God, your word is so powerful. It is convicting and it just pierces through me. And so, God, I just pray that as we just dig in tonight even further in our discussions, I just, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for what you have for us in your word. I want to thank you that you offer us so much more than this world ever can. I pray that as we discuss this further, that you would continue to drive these truths into our hearts in a way that changes us, in a way that rocks us to our core, that's not just information, that's not just head knowledge, but it really does translate into helping us to love you more. So God, change us, work in us, move in us, and let that continue on as we have our discussions and as we go throughout our weeks. It's in your name we pray. Amen.